Thank you. Uh, interestingly, uh, y'all may or may not know this, but God's people have worshipped for thousands of years without slides and screens. And even around the world today, there's lots of God's people who do this every week without technology. So even with slides that don't work and microphones that ring and buzz and all that good stuff, uh, Jesus can be glorified and can be worshipped. And uh, keeping uh, with the theme of different today, we're taking a break from 1 Corinthians. Um, not because we had some master plan or something the Spirit led us to do months ago when we were putting together a preaching schedule. You know, the first Sunday of August is the last Sunday People can go out of town before school starts, and nobody will be here. So let's, let's just take a break from our series and do something different that Sunday. That, that's not it at all. Um, when Kendrick informed me about a month ago uh, what he posted on the city uh, this past week, his need for some time away to rest and continue to process a lot of the things he's trying to process as he goes through this church planter preparation through Psalm Ascending, uh, which, by the way, I'm incredibly grateful for my brother, um, being very humble and uh, transparent and sharing some of the things that he shared this past week. Uh, I'm grateful for a church that is very gracious and understanding to give him space for that, to bless him, to love him, and to pray for him, which we'll do in a little bit. I'm grateful for how the Spirit has put him in a position where he has some margin to work through some things uh, now uh, before he's in the crucible of leading a church plant in a completely different context. But when, when I became aware of, of his need for that, and, and so this Sunday fell on my lap, I thought, okay, no problem. We just move some things around and continue our series of 1 Corinthians. What I did not know is that I would end up this past week completely consumed by coaching my daughters, my two oldest daughters' volleyball team. Um, my responsibilities as a head coach, um, leading the volleyball camp five days uh, this past week for five hours a day. Um, I thought someone else was going to be running the camp at the last minute. They couldn't, so it fell in my lap, along with uh, rosters and uniforms and parents and schedules and referees and on and on I could go. Um, I have eaten and slept and dreamed about volleyball this entire week, which, which is good. It's all good. But I got to Thursday and haven't even cracked the text. And I'm like, I'm in trouble. Uh, Y'all are in trouble. So, okay, Lord, you, do you want to do something different? Begin to pray and be open to the Spirit's leading in that. And uh, do I need to do anything different as far as the ringing? Do y'all, y'all got it? Okay. Uh, and, uh, and he began to make it clear over the next couple of days uh, that, uh, yeah, we'll do something different this Sunday. And so we'll pick up with 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Trusting the Spirit, what he has for us today, is going to be equally as beneficial to us as the body of Christ who love him, who love his word, as 1 Corinthians 12 would have been and will be next week. And so we're going to walk through how we fight against spiritual entropy through repentance and belief in God and his gospel. But first, let's pray. Let's pray for our time together and let's pray for our brother. Father, we are thankful that we can gather as your people. Uh, your people have been doing this for thousands of years. They're doing it uh, right now all over the world. Millions upon millions of your followers worshiping Jesus through your word and led by the Spirit. And we want to join with them. We want to join with the angels in heaven who are constantly worshiping you around your throne. And we want to experience the presence of God through the word of God and the Spirit of God. And so help us to do that today. We do pray for Kendrick. We pray for safe travels. We pray for this, this time away of of, of 
um, isolation and spiritual discipline and rest and just for the Spirit of God to fall on him in mighty, mighty ways, for the Word of God to uh, work in him in mighty, mighty ways, for you to accomplish whatever you desire to accomplish during these next 10 days in his life, his heart, his mind. May he be at peace. May he um, enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit and the Son and the Father. May you even sovereignly ordain conversations with other people that would be encouraging to his soul. Father, may you bless Amelia and Titus and Nora as they walk through a week without dad, without husband, that you would take care of everything that could come up in their life, that everything would work, nothing would break. And we thank you for the body of Christ that is ready and willing and able and available to love and, and support them while Kendrick is away. God, we thank you for a church that values these things. And we pray you would always help us to be a church that that loves their leaders, that loves their leaders to be healthy. And we'll invest in that. May you be glorified in what you do in his life these next 10 days. May you be glorified in what we experience in the next few minutes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I went through this week of volleyball camp with 21 teenage girls for five hours a day, five days, it, it's, it was a ton of fun. Right? It's kind of like Disney World. It's exhausting, but a ton of fun. Um, I, I was kind of reminded about getting back in this rhythm that we have in our culture of going back to school. You know, and kind of a, a switch flip for us. Fall, you know, volleyball's here. Fall is here. School is here. Even though it's still hot, it's not officially fall. It's the routine, return to routines and disciplines that characterize much of our lives, especially if you are in school or you have kids who are in school. The school schedule kind of drives everything until you get to the summer and then you just kind of relax. You, you go into the summer malaise or the summer blahs. And this back and forth rhythm is similar to what sometimes we experience spiritually. I was talking to the girls one morning at camp and I, I asked them, can, can y'all tell me anything about the second law of thermodynamics? And of course their eyes kind of glazed over like some of your eyes are glazing over. You know, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, we're homeschoolers, we're not even supposed to be awake right now. What are you talking about? But the second law of thermodynamics basically is all about entropy. The basic idea of entropy is moving from order to disorder. And within an isolated system or a closed system like the universe, without an infusion of energy, matter is always moving from order to disorder. And entropy sets in. You might say it's the process of decay or deterioration that happens naturally in everyone and everything unless energy is infused into the system to turn that process around. One simple way of thinking about it is this. When a business closes down like a restaurant and that property just sits there and nobody's coming along to do anything about that property, what happens? It decays. It deteriorates. The concrete that was an infusion of energy into the property will begin to crumble and over time break down and cracks form and grass begins to grow up, revealing the cracks and the breakdown of the concrete. The building will fade and deteriorate the exterior, the interior. And if you leave it there long enough, eventually nature will just take over. And you won't even know that a building was there over a period of time. Unless someone's coming along to mow and kill the weeds and clean the building and keep putting energy to keep the system from breaking down. In our spiritual lives, we can experience a very similar thing. Without a constant 
injection of life, power, energy, left to our natural fleshy state, we will go into what, what I call our default mode, our autopilot, and decay spiritually, just spiritual deterioration, spiritual entropy will begin to set in. We're engaged, the Spirit's leading, guiding us, we're taking initiative, we're walking in obedience, and then all of a sudden, we're disengaged. All of a sudden, we're going on autopilot. We're kind of going through the motions, the blahs. It's summertime. Let's take a break from all this spiritual stuff. Another way of thinking about it is we start living like functional atheists. None of us would say God isn't real, we don't believe in God. But by the way we live our lives, we're living as though He's not real. As though He's not engaged and we have a relationship with Him. And guys, it looks different for everybody in this room. Like, you can be very productive, functional atheists. Be very engaged in spiritual tasks, but you task, but you know it's not flowing from the hope, joy, love, peace of Christ in you. You're just busy doing spiritual things. You look great on the outside, but there's no joy. There's no fruit. Or you can be very withdrawn and disengaged functional atheists. Just unplugging from people in life and usually plugging into unhealthy relationships with entertainment or food to be your companion while you're in this spiritual blahs. And so it's hard to know really who's in this disengaged state sometimes because it looks so different for everybody. But a great conversation that you guys can have with whoever you're in DNA groups with or whoever you're uh, spiritually accountable to and who you're constantly checking in with to encourage you spiritually, a great conversation you can have is, this is what it looks like when I'm in that state. This is what I'm going to do when I'm in that state. This is, this is what I'm going to be feeling or thinking. And so these are the questions that you can then ask me constantly to make sure I'm not pursuing things I shouldn't pursue, to make sure my heart is still fresh and vibrant for Jesus. For me, the warning lights have to do with me presenting a false image to others. I am fine, even though I'm not fine. So for me, I have to have people in my life who really will dig deep, who really know me, because I can look very productive and competent but I'm really consumed with being productive so I can appear okay when I'm really not okay. And I can be eaten up with competitiveness and comparison and performance-driven worth and value and image consciousness. Now that's me. What about you? For some, when you're in that spiritual malaise, that spiritual entropy, you get caught up in perfectionist tendencies. And you become overly critical and upright and rigid and structured, trying to control yourself and trying to control your environment. For others, you start to smother those around you and become very possessive and overly protective and, and dependent. And you want to ask for help. You just want to keep helping others so they will appreciate you and show you value and worth. Some become super moody or melodramatic or sensitive, almost a depressed state, but also secretive and distant and withdrawn. For others in this room, this time of living as a functional atheist means you become more insecure, filled with anxiety, worry, suspicion. You feel very vulnerable to everyone and everything. You may be, even become hypervigilant trying to protect everyone around you so they will be safe because if you can keep everybody safe, you won't have to worry about them. For others, this season could mean you become very self-indulgent and impulsive, living for pleasure and excessive entertainment and attention-seeking behaviors. Or maybe for you, you become very demanding, intimidating, bossy, aggressive, confrontational, overbearing. And there will be others in this room who become very passive, 
avoiding conflict, seeking to try to make everyone happy around them, accommodating everyone because if everybody will be happy, then they can be happy. And so we all end up in those dark places. Maybe it's, it's a daily thing or a weekly thing or a monthly battle for you, maybe longer periods or less frequent periods. The question really isn't how to stay out of those places because the reality is we're all going to end up there. Until we're in the glorified state, eternal state, we have a sinful flesh that we constantly live with. We are in a sin-cursed world with temptation everywhere, and we have an enemy who's always coming after us to destroy us and bring us down. So you're, you're going to end up in that place eventually until we are fully glorified in the presence of our Father forever. So more than how we stay out of those places, how do we get out once we're there? That's really the key. And this is where we as a church need to grasp the rhythm of repentance that must characterize our lives. Yes, we can and still sin. We still go in autopilot and default mode and we live as functional atheists. So what do we do when we get there? That's the rhythm of repentance. When I realize I'm there, and sometimes we realize we're there and, and we can self-correct by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God, sometimes we don't, we don't realize we're there or we don't want to realize we're there. And that's where we need the body of Christ to come along. Say, hey, brother, hey, sister, what's going on? So what do we do? How do we live this life of repentance, turning from sin and trusting in Christ over and over and over? One of the helpful tools we've used from the beginning of the crossing, not unique to the crossing, a lot of churches use this tool, but what's become known as the four G's, it's taken from Tim Chester's book, You Can Change, God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behavior and Negative Emotions. He basically talks through the biblical truth that the battle against sinful behavior and negative emotions begins in the mind with what we believe. And if we can win the battle there, we've won the battle. Because every sinful action and negative emotion flows from something false or untrue that we believe about God or ourselves. And so believing what is true instead of what is false is where repentance happens. It happens in the mind before it happens in our behavior. And he's condensed those truths about who God is and what God has done and who, who that makes us and how that changes how we live into four basic statements. Now, we talked about this so much when we began the crossing that they became kind of almost formulaic and kind of routine and meaningless. And so we kind of backed off of them for a while, but there's something we're always going to come back to. Like anything, it can be, be abused and, and become routine, but the truths and realities behind these statements are always true because it's rooted in who God is as revealed in the Scriptures, as revealed in Jesus. And so they're always beneficial for us to spend time walking through, and that's what we're going to do today. The Spirit of God can use these truths about God found in the Scriptures to bring you back to Him right now, wherever you're at, and every day beyond today. And certainly there are other biblical truths about God. These aren't the only four truths about God, but these for sure can help. In fact, some say that every time we sin... Every sin in our life can be traced back to not believing one of these four truths about God. Typically, one or two of these will resonate with you more than the other two. This will be your main battle. But at times, all of us will battle all of these things. So let's walk through them. They won't be on the screen. Nope, they won't be on the screen. So you'll just have to listen. Number one, God is great. God is great. So I don't have to look elsewhere for salvation and security because God is great. I don't have to be in control. Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. 
How do you quantify the greatness of God? How do you measure it? Like what spectrum or scale do you put it on? What framework do you provide to understand the greatness of God? Like there is none. It's beyond human comprehension. You see this clearly in creation, life in expanse and space and size and beauty, meticulous detail, intricacy, every single aspect of creation from the grand to the microscopic and it all happened from an instant with a word. Let there be light. Let there be sky. Let there be land. Let there be sea. Let there be stars and moons and universes and planets. Universe, planets, galaxies, solar systems. Let there be animals that swim in the sea and birds that fly in the air. Let there be animals that walk on the land. And let there be man and woman created in the image of God. And it was Good, all from nothing into something with a word. Fully formed, intricate, beautiful, amazing. And the greatness of God, most of all, is on display through Jesus Christ, the only person to ever walk this planet and never sin one time. Never had an off moment, never had an off day. Completely perfect in everything he said, did, thought, believed, motivated by this was Jesus. Power to raise the dead. Power to walk on water and calm the storm with a word and it calms instantly. To heal and touch the leper. To cast out demons. To teach with authority. And then to die on the cross to accomplish the salvific plan of God that was set in motion before the foundation of the world. Accomplishing only what God could accomplish for us. A way to be reconciled back to Him. And after the sins of our parents in the garden. And then he was buried and rose and ascended back to the Father where he continues to intercede for us, waiting for the day to return and bring his bride home with him forever. And all of this done by the power and greatness of God. No one, nothing could stop or can stop this from happening. God does what he does because he's God. And no person can stop God from accomplishing his purposes. If he says it's going to happen, it is going to happen. No one else in all of human history has that kind of power. No one else is that great. Showing us, even in the crucifixion and the life and ministry of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, that everything happened not just the way God wanted it to happen, but exactly when He wanted it to happen. How many times in the Gospels did Jesus leave the crowds who were ready to kill Him because, as the Gospel writer said, it was not time. But in the fullness of time, it happened exactly when God wanted it to happen, at the very hour when He wanted it to happen. Showing us, yet again, that His total sovereign control over every cell, every atom, every second, every being in all of creation is under His sovereign rule, His providential control. Now we all say, Amen. Yes, we love the sovereignty of God. Until things don't go our way. When things don't go our way, all of a sudden, we're not in control. Wait a second. I'm okay with you being in control as long as you're doing what I want you to do. But when something happens in my life that's out of my control, then we're not so happy with the sovereignty of God. We live with the illusion of control. 
We think we're in control. We think we're going to carry out the rest of our plans that we've made even today. We don't really know for sure if in five minutes we're going to be alive. We have no guarantee, no promise. We just assume we will be. But any one of us could drop dead in the next few minutes. And when times get tough, that is God's way of pulling back the veil to help us to see you're really not in control as much as you think you are. And the struggle for us is this. When I can't control my circumstances or the people in my life, I struggle to see that God is great. He doesn't appear to be so great when things aren't going my way. When I can't control my comfort, when I can't control my safety, my money, my spouse, my time, when I can't control the opinions of others, the sanctification of others, the salvation of others, then I just might freak out. I might get angry or live with frustration because I can't make happen what I want to happen because I'm not sovereign. I'm not God. Yes, God is in control. Amen, pastor. Until things don't go my way and the illusion of my control is exposed and the anger comes up that I'm not in control and that's revealed and now what do I do? Your response when you are reminded that you're not in control reveals your heart. Okay, God. You created everything in the universe with the word. You sustained everything in the universe with the word. You accomplished the salvation of humanity, the work of the gospel perfectly through Jesus. Yet I can't trust you to provide enough money for me and my family this month. I can't trust you to save my child who's running away from you or my parent who is running away from you. I can't trust you enough to work out this situation in my life for your good and for my good and your glory. Guys, it is freeing, it is healthy to not live trying to be in control of your life. But instead, trusting that your good Father in heaven with every single detail, every single dollar, every single person, every single situation is in control of your life and He is working it out for your good and His glory. He is a good dad. Sometimes a conversation in our house can be, why does it feel like God is doing this? And we'll remind each other, but that's not how God does things because he's a good father. That's not how a good father would act. So we know it's a lie from the enemy and it's not really who God is. He, he's a good father who loves his children and he's always working things out in the lives of his children in a way that is wise and best even when it doesn't seem to be wise and best. He's always working it out for our good even when it hurts and it's painful. Even when it's not what you would choose, you can trust him. He knows things we don't know. He sees things we don't see. And so rest in him. See his control as security and salvation and not an infringement on your sovereignty. God is great. He is in control. We don't have to be, and that's a great thing. And so you don't have to look anywhere else for your salvation for your security. He's got you. And nothing in all of the universe can change that. Secondly, God is glorious. God is glorious. So I don't have to look elsewhere for significance. I don't have to fear others because God is glorious. Glory is defined in the scriptures as weight or heaviness. You see God revealing his weight or heaviness throughout the scriptures. Think of Moses in the burning bush. A bush that's on fire but not being consumed. A, a moment so holy, Moses had to take off his shoes. Couldn't even f- 
speak to this bush initially. He was overwhelmed by the weight, the heaviness, the presence of God. God's heaviness or weight on Mount Sinai where he's shaking a mountain. If you touch the mountain, you will die. The people had to pull back because the weight and the presence, the grandeur of God was so glorious in that moment. He is God in that moment. I am not. And the only response, the only response is reverence and fear and awe and worship and obedience. I better do what this guy says because he is so heavy. Yet often we fall into sin because we make man in general or a particular person more glorious and weighty than God. Like some of us live under the weight of millions of met or unmet expectations and letting people down. Just this constant regret of failing others and not measuring up. Living in fear of man means we worship man means we depend on man, means we care more about what they think, and so we modify our behavior to please man in unhealthy ways. Sometimes we won't speak the truth. Sometimes we live enslaved to someone's opinion or become hypersensitive to what everyone else thinks about you. You can't say no. You can't ask for help. You flip and you flop to whatever the next person's opinion is so that you can impress that person. It can be wanting to avoid the disapproval of man, or for some it's even worse. If you don't think I'm awesome, I'm crushed. Or if you think I'm an idiot, I'm crushed. It can be I want to impress people, or I don't want them to be disappointed in me. All of us are impacted by praise and criticism. All of us. There's not a human on the face of the earth who's not impacted in some way when people praise them or people criticize them. But the degree to which we are impacted reveals the condition of our heart in this issue. Praise and criticism should be like chewing gum. You chew on it for a little while to get out the truth that's in there, and then you spit it out. You're done with it. You're never as great as you think you are. You're never as horrible as you think you are in the opinions of others. But something, but if it becomes something that we live for or it becomes something we can't handle because it crushes us, then our hearts are living in fear of man more than the fear of God. We should be impacted when someone we love dies. But the degree to which we are impacted could reveal that this person is too big in our lives, in our hearts. Bigger and more weightier than God himself. The death of someone in our life that we love should ruin our day, should maybe ruin our week or our month or our year, but not ruin our lives. Because we still have God. When we live in the fear of man, we are saying that person in, in particular, a person in particular, or people in general, are more real and weighty and their words and thoughts about me are more powerful than God himself. And so I'm going to work hard for their approval and not care as much about God's. So this morning, I want you to imagine that person in your mind. Who is this person? You can't immediately think of a person, then pick any person and just picture them in your mind that represents your fear of man. Think of a, the person you might fear or want the approval of the most. Now, have them pictured in your mind as I read this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man with unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How big is that person now? How weighty is that person now? Isn't it kind of silly to make people bigger than God? And when we find ourselves enslaved to the fear of man, we need to repent and return to this big view of God. We don't need a smaller view of man. That's what we often do. We just try to crush man. No, no, no. We need a bigger view of God. Because when we have the right view of God, everyone is small. And we're living in fear of Him. We grow in this not by degrading people, but by seeing God, especially in Jesus who is the ultimate and most accurate picture of who God is for us. God is glorious. Your significance is tied to what He thinks of you more than any single person or group of people who are in your life. You don't have to live in the fear or the approval of any person more than God. What they think about you has no bearing about what your Father in Heaven thinks about you. So rest in that and be free. God is glorious. So I don't have to look elsewhere for significance. I don't have to fear others. Thirdly, God is good. So I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction and joy. I don't have to have my, me- my needs met anywhere else other than Him. Because He's good. God created us with physical needs and then He promised to meet all of them. But the point of the physical need wasn't just to have physical needs met, but to use the presence of physical needs in our life to point us to the greater reality of spiritual needs. The physical needs that we have are something that we're only going to have in this life. They won't exist beyond this life. We're limited now by these bodies that are infected with the curse of sin, and we're in a constant state of decline and decay. You can eat as healthy as you want. You can work out as much as you want. Those are not bad things. But you're still getting old every single year. Your hair's turning gray every single year. Your body's deteriorating every single year. You're going to die. No one can avoid this. It's the curse of sin. But let's think about the spiritual realities behind our physical needs. We get tired, so we need rest and we need sleep. But even more than physical rest, we need spiritual rest. To know that the work of our salvation was accomplished by Jesus and not us. And so we're not running around trying to save ourselves. We're resting spiritually in what Christ has done for us. Which frees us up to then use our bodies and lives to glorify Him. They're not working to earn God's love or God's approval. We need food. Our bodies get hungry and we feed them. But guess what happens a few hours later? They're hungry again. If I talk long enough right here this morning, you, you start hearing each other's stomachs growl. The spiritual reality is our souls are hungry for a greater food than, food than bread, meat, or cheese. 
but the word of God. And so just as I feed my body with food, so I need to feed my soul with God's word. We need relationships and sexual intimacy. God created us with that longing and desire. Why is that? Because even more, our souls need intimacy with God to be fully known and fully loved, which is the greatest form of intimacy. So now imagine how good God is as a good father, promising and fulfilling his promise to meet every single one of our physical needs through sleep, food, drink, marriage, sexual intimacy, but also good to meet every one of our spiritual needs through himself, through who he is. God gives good gifts to meet our physical needs. God gives himself to meet our deepest needs. And when we realize this, we are content. We are at peace We have Him, we have enough. We have joy, we have peace, we have hope, we have love because we have Him. Not because we have food or marriage or sexual intimacy or rest. We get all of that ultimately from Him. And we have this humble dependence knowing He will provide and loves to provide. And we have this joy that is long-lasting and unwavering because we can't lose Him. We can lose everything. And still have joy because we have Him. So our joy is not tied to our physical needs being met. Our joy is tied to our spiritual needs being met always and forever and fully by Jesus. You can lose everything, but we never lose Him. him, And so we never lose our joy, our hope, and our peace. So is that where we go and we look for our ultimate satisfaction? Or do we take good things God provides and we make them our ultimate source of joy and satisfaction? When we do that, we, we turn a good thing God provides to meet physical needs and it becomes a, a bad thing, an idol, because we're depending on that thing or that person to provide what God truly only can provide and ultimately provide. So where we go when we're afraid, where we go when we're hurt is a huge indicator of what we rely on for comfort and satisfaction. Where do we turn when we're hurt, sad, afraid? When we turn to anything other than God, we are saying, God, you're not enough. I have you, but you're not enough for, for this moment because I am depressed or sad or afraid or, or whatever. I also need food, sex, drink, entertainment, comfort, health, working out, accomplishment, safety, money, sleep, approval, more than you. Because in those things, I actually find more joy than I find in you. Food is not created to satisfy us forever. It doesn't last. We are constantly hungry for more. But God wants that constant hunger to be for Him more than food. There's no human relationship that will not fail you. Everyone in your life is going to let you down. Those beautiful babies that we're holding all over the church and we're raising, they're going to wake up and they're going to shake their fists in your face and they're going to let you down. Hard to believe, but it's going to happen. Marriage is two selfish sinners constantly failing each other. When it's good, it's only by His grace and a demonstration of the gospel. But even when it's good, it won't last. Eventually, one of you is going to die. You will still fail each other. Only God is the one who never fails us, abandons us, or forsakes us. So putting our hope, joy, peace, comfort in any other person is foolish. Because they're going to fail us. God won't. God is good, 
And he promises and he does meet all of our needs, ultimately our greatest needs through himself. And so our ultimate joy and satisfaction is found in him. And once we have him, we never lose him, which means we can lose everything and still have joy and satisfaction. Therefore, we don't have to depend on anyone or anything to give us our ultimate joy and satisfaction. They will fail us. He will not. Which, which actually, if you think about it, that opens you up to give away everything for the good of others. Really. I don't need anyone or anything to have joy. I have Jesus. So I can give away everything for the good of others. God is good. So I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction and joy. I don't have to meet my needs anywhere else other than Him. Lastly, God is gracious. So I don't have to look elsewhere for acceptance and approval. I don't have to prove myself because God is gracious to me. How do you know if you struggle with this? When you mess up, do you hear idiot and failure? When you see others fail, does it make you self-righteous toward them? They should know better. Are you still trying to prove yourself to someone that you're smart enough, successful enough, wise enough, funny enough, strong enough? Do you struggle to receive grace and forgiveness, or do you think that you have to wallow in self-pity and regret before God will forgive you and love you again? Is how you feel about yourself tied to your ability to succeed at anything? This often is most confused with the glory of God. God's glory is who God is. God is unlike anyone else, weighty, heavy, big, mighty. God's grace is more about how God is, how he treats us and responds to us, and therefore how I want to impress and prove myself and avoid disapproval. The battle is, look at my record, how amazing I is. Now the reality is because of our sins and God's holiness, all we really, any of us, have earned or deserved from God is wrath and death and judgment. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 says. The only thing we've earned, the paycheck, do the wages, the, the wages due of our sins, the paycheck we get at the end of the day, because we're sinners, is death. That's all we've really earned. But it also says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about it. If we're born dead in our sins and trespasses, according to Ephesians 2, and if our righteousness is as filthy rags before God, the best we can do is filthy rags, then we have zero expectation that we should receive anything from God except for wrath and condemnation and death. The angels rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. There's no redemption for the angels. No salvation for them. We are sinful. God is holy. Why should we ever be expected to be saved from death, wrath, and judgment? Why do we have that? Look how amazing I am, God. Of course you would save me. No. You're a sinner only deserving God's wrath and judgment. It's only because God is gracious toward us. And all of this is rooted in Jesus. God is gracious toward us because Jesus purchased our freedom from God's wrath. But God is such a gracious God, He's even gracious to those who aren't His. The fact that billions of people wake up and live every day with the joy of their jobs, family, laughter, food, the beauty of creation, while worshiping everyone and everything other than God who made them is an incredible act of grace on God's part. To give them time to live, to hear the gospel and come alive in Christ. 
This idea of God's graciousness is rooted and based in how the Father feels about the Son. And our standing before our Father in heaven is rooted and based in who Christ is and what Christ has done. What I deserve on my own is only God's wrath, but God, how treats me is based on how he feels about Jesus. Because I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me, and as the Father feels about the Son is how the Father feels about me. 1 John 3, 1 through 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Romans 8.16 tells us, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit is constantly bearing witness that we are sons and daughters of our Father in Heaven. And it's all based upon Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this morning, do you know the deep love your Father in Heaven has for you? Because of Jesus. Often and sometimes because our earthly father relationships are so broken and flawed, it's hard for us to believe that our Father in Heaven deeply loves us and is thrilled and joyful over us all the time. And dads, we, we just can't do it perfectly, which is why, dads, we have to be humble when we fail to go to our kids and say, I love you, I'm your father, I'll give my life for you, but you have a Father in Heaven who loves you even more. I will fail you, he'll never fail you. We can't be the ultimate father hero for our kids. They have to see our Father in Heaven as, as, as the Father. It's hard sometimes to see and really believe that when He comes to us or when we go to Him, there is always and only grace and love because of Jesus reconciling us to Him. We don't fall out of that reconciling relationship, which means we don't fall out of His grace and love. So therefore, we never go to our fathers, our Father in heaven, we never go to our Father in heaven, and He never comes to us with His arms crossed, tapping His foot, wagging His finger. Ever. Because our relationship with Him is rooted in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And there is only and always grace and love when we come to our Father and our Father comes to us. Affectionate, committed, agape love. Even when we sin and fail, we can grieve our Father. Our sins can grieve our Father, but He never looks down on us. He never shames us. He never wags His finger at us. It never condemns us. It's always and only grace and love for us always and forever. There's no list of things that we have to do to get His approval. It is finished. It's done. Jesus did it. So for us, there's grace always and only, which means if I have His approval always because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, how important is the approval of others? Do I have to live enslaved so that others think well of me all the time? Do I have to prove myself to anyone if I'm totally and 100% accepted by my Father in heaven through Jesus? And if you think that means, oh, great, now I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks about me. Then you completely missed it. But that is how scandalous it is. Like if our mind doesn't go there, we're not preaching the free grace of God. 
Paul himself had to tell the Romans in Romans 6.1 that all of this grace of the gospel doesn't mean you can just keep sending it up. Because it sounds like that. It sounds too good to be true. It sounds like it doesn't matter anymore. I'm so accepted and loved by my Father, I can really do what I want. No, you can't. But that's how amazing it is. That's how overwhelming it is. That is how scandalous it is. God is great. So I don't have to look elsewhere for salvation and security. I don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so I don't have to look elsewhere for significance. I don't have to fear others. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction and joy. I don't have to meet my needs anywhere other than God. And God is gracious. I don't have to look elsewhere for acceptance and approval. I don't have to prove myself. Which one of those do you need the most today? To bring you back from functional atheism. Father, may you overwhelm us this morning with these realities about who you are. Your glory, your goodness, your grace, your greatness. We're so glad this is who you are. We don't have to be those things because it's who you are. And we can rest and enjoy this relationship with our Father in heaven. I pray for everyone who's here. In whatever way we need to know these truths about you, you would work that out and accomplish that in our hearts and minds right now. For your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you all stand?